This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and more about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. Hi, and welcome back to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the courts and the Supreme Court and the rule of law. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. I cover these things at Slate Magazine. And today we are mourning the death of Senator Dianne Feinstein, who died this week at the age of 90. Feinstein won her U.S. Senate seat in 1992 in what would become known as the Year of the Woman, an election that sent 24 new women to the House of Representatives and brought the total number of female senators up to six after a horrified nation watched how Anita Hill was treated during the Clarence Thomas confirmation hearings. Senator Feinstein was a trailblazer on efforts to regulate guns, to expand LGBTQ rights, and to oppose U.S. government torture policies. She was also an unerring defender of women's reproductive freedom and dignity. She was the first woman on the Senate Judiciary Committee, the first woman to chair that committee. And as such, she was a powerful voice for changing the federal bench to make it more inclusive and more reflective of a diverse population. This only just scratches the surface of her achievements and the scope of her influence. My colleague, Slate's political writer Alex Salmon, is sharing more reflections on Dianne Feinstein's life and career on our sister podcast, The Waves. I have had in my lifetime the great pleasure of meeting Senator Feinstein on several occasions. I am so grateful for her service and so inspired by the path she created for the women who followed. May her memory be a blessing. Senator Feinstein cast her final vote in the Senate at around 12.50 p.m. on Thursday afternoon on the continuing resolution to keep the government open. That looming government shutdown, still very much in the cards at the time of this taping, will, among other things, have huge repercussions on the court and the justice system. But this week's show is about what is definitely on the docket at 1 First Street, because we are about to head into yet another First Monday and another monumentally important term at the U.S. Supreme Court. Here on Amicus, we find ourselves in the familiar terrain we like to call, quote, the curtain raiser. And for reasons I don't actually believe I need to explain to you as listeners anymore, the deep, deep dive on issues raised by the clutch of two dozen or so cases the court has agreed to hear. Those cases are plucked from between five and 7,000 petitions that they can choose from. This kind of deep dive is precisely the sort of preterm exercise we really revile here at Slate because it feels as though pouring over these seven or eight, quote, big cases as a set of will they, won't they, horse race questions about doctrine, that's not a preview of the term. 
At this point, doing that feels analogous to fretting over the results of seven isolated chemistry experiments without ever reckoning with the fact that the test tubes, the Bunsen burners, and indeed six of the nine scientists themselves have all been purchased by a clutch of millionaires and billionaires in order to achieve very specific results. So when we hear in June that Chevron was reversed this year in a lab experiment that was wholly financed by billionaire deregulators, well, I choose not to be surprised. But that said, there are still cases, and the term, again, will be monumental, and the constitutional revolution must be televised. Hint, it will not be televised. And so my friend and co-pilot Mark Joseph Stern has joined me for a slightly reluctant conversation about what few cases are on the docket and how to think about it. Slate Plus members, we're sharing this extra episode of Amicus with all of our listeners, but I promise we'll be back with more Slate Plus exclusive segments next week. If you like the sound of that and you aren't yet a Slate Plus member, you can always go to slate.com slash amicus plus. Thank you to those of you who subscribe. It makes our journalism possible. And so to assist me, not so much with raising the curtain, but hopefully peeking behind it a little bit, Mark Joseph Stern. Hi, Dahlia. Thank you for having me. Can I just lodge one more objection to the curtain raiser tradition while we're here and doing this? There is a curtain in the Supreme Court, famously, a big red velvet curtain, right? But it doesn't rise ever. And when I hear curtain raiser, I think of it going straight up into the air and the justices are in like sequined robes right behind it in a chorus line doing kicks like the Rockettes, you know? That's the image. And it just, it doesn't happen. You know, they, they just yander out from behind the curtain and take their seats and sip their coffee and look very unhappy. And I just think there's an overpromise in the phrase curtain raiser um, that we need to put to bed for good this term. Right. And let's remember um, uh, when, you know, we had the Ginsburg Scalia opera fanatic construction of the court as theater and then Chief Justice William Rehnquist, who sewed those gold bars on his robe <laughs> to signify, again, borrowing from the opera, that something, you know, happens in front of the curtain and behind the curtain. And like, you are quite right. Curtain raiser, it's just entirely the wrong locution. So, so here we are, Mark, a poor, unfortunate soul who has to cover the science experiments, even as he knows that billionaires are paying good money to have glacier martinis with the chemists after work. Let's talk about <laughs> the big, big themes of last term, which I know we've done a lot on this show, but let's see if we can pull some of them through. And maybe the one I just wanted to start with with you is this idea of kind of judicial arrogance. I think that's the word that we used at the end of, of last term, the notion that the justices are just going to get to be the deciders about everything under one quote-unquote doctrine or another. Does that pull through to this term? Yes, to a degree. You know, last term, I, I think the, the best example of that phenomenon was the student loan case, right, where the theory of standing was so egregious that Justice Kagan accused 
Chief Justice Roberts, of actually violating the Constitution himself by agreeing to take this case and decide it on the merits. And there was an extraordinary arrogance that ran throughout some of the other cases, including the habeas cases, which don't get a lot of attention, but you basically had the six conservatives saying, we don't care if someone is wrongfully convicted, if they're going to languish behind bars for conduct that wasn't even illegal. Uh, they're stuck there because of our terrible misreading of federal law. You had, even when the court pulled out a kind of surprise rabbit in the hat, like uh, the Voting Rights Act case, which, you know, continues to be the kind of major progressive victory from last term, even though it was mostly just holding the line. You know, you had four dissenting justices expressing sincere outrage that the court would dare interfere with the sovereign choices of Alabama with this very sort of obnoxious and I think hubristic sense that they they know better than 40 plus years of precedent and the chief justice and pretty much every previous voting rights decision that, you know, it's it's time to kill the VRA because racism is solved. That kind of arrogance definitely coming over into this term. But it's a different kind of term from last one because a ton of the cases that are already on the docket and that are heading toward the docket are coming out of the Fifth Circuit, right? Which is sort of like a funhouse mirror image of the Supreme Court, where the Supreme Court does something that's like a, a six out of 10 on the crazy scale. And then the Fifth Circuit takes that and runs with it and makes it an 11 out of 10 on the crazy scale. And so what we're going to see this term is also the majority Barrett, Kavanaugh, Roberts especially, deciding how and where they want to kind of pump the brakes on this constitutional revolution. And I think that'll make it tempting to say, oh, the court's moderate again. It's no longer arrogant and extreme and far right. But that's really not going to be the case. What's going to happen is that the court is doing cleanup for the mess that it made by writing these extremely broad opinions that empowered kind of wacky judges on the lower courts to go all out with these theories that have very little basis in the law. Right. So if we were going to torture my analogy of sort of sophomore year chemistry class in high school, what you're saying is that it's as though the lab is getting its like magnesium from, you know, some like tar pit that is owned by the Cokes <laughs> and then pretending that, you know, oh, well, you know, we're working with the raw ingredients we get. No, they're working with the raw ingredients that the Fifth Circuit keeps serving up. And it's crazy. And so when the court says, oh, this is too crazy, Fifth Circuit, that doesn't mean that this was a flawless neutral experiment. It means that they're working with stuff that is garbage. Fair? Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I was not very good at sophomore chemistry. And so I find this, this uh, conceit a bit triggering. But <laughs> I think that holds together, except that I think Harlan Crow is the one who would own the mine. And the Cokes would be the one to siphon off profits and use it to lobby for less regulation of the mine. I think that's how the system works. Okay. Well, we can go back to opera, if that's a better <laughs> metaphor. But I think both opera and chemistry, maybe we have beaten to death. Um, so so one of the things that I've been saying, and, and check this if it's wrong, is that in like broad, broad brush, two terms ago, I called the guns, God, 
an abortion term. And last term, barreling into the term, we talked about it as the voting term, right? It was going to Mm -hmm. be the end of the Voting Rights Act. It was going to be Moore versus Harper and the end of the independent state legislature theory. And as you've pointed out, but it's worth saying, the court didn't do on voting what we expected them to do. And for all sorts of complicated reasons, we've talked about a lot on this show, that doesn't mean it was a huge win for the liberals. But is it fair to say that this term is the deregulatory term? This is the term where we just end the administrative state and we end kind of, as I think Elena Kagan would say, government as we now know it. Is that the big, big theme this year? Well, that is what the Fifth Circuit has teed up for SCOTUS, for sure. Many of the major cases that are either there or barreling toward the Supreme Court are efforts to destroy the administrative state. And it is not an exaggeration to say that these cases, especially the ones out of the fight in Fifth, are designed to make it impossible for the federal government to function as it does today and as it has for well over a century. These cases are designed to literally blow up certain federal agencies, to simply strike them down as unconstitutional as a whole, or to render them so incredibly weak that they no longer have any power to enforce the law. And those decisions all run to the benefit of wealthy people uh, and corporations, right? You know, the Fifth Circuit couches them in this broad kind of hazy language of democracy and personal liberty and separation of powers. But come on, we all know what this is about. It is about allowing corporations to do whatever they want without government oversight, without risk of civil fines, civil penalties, and allowing rich people to make a ton of money and do whatever they want with it, including buying elections, uh, again, without interference from the government. And so, again, you know, the question is, will the Supreme Court go as far as the Fifth Circuit wants? No, I really think I can say the answer is no. But it might go a few steps in that direction. And because what the Fifth Circuit wants is so extreme, a few steps will register to some of the public as, oh, moderate, a compromise, but shouldn't because what it actually is, is shifting the Overton window and rendering decisions against the administrative state that would have been unthinkable as recently as five years ago. So let's start there. Let's start on Loper Bright. And I mentioned Chevron in the intro. And before you explain why a case about herring fishing is, in fact, going to be the end of Chevron, possibly, or whatever the crumbling husk of Chevron still is, I just want to flag that we had a conversation, you and I, with Steve Lodick last week, in which he said, and I thought this was a useful frame, in some sense, whether or not Chevron goes is ancillary to what has crept in in its place, which is the major questions doctrine. In other words, that there is this very nuanced technical question that remains from the 1984 Chevron decision about who gets to interpret statutes, you know, the agency or, or not, that almost doesn't matter if you are saying that agencies just can't do what they're supposed to do because it's unconstitutional, right? The major questions doctrine in some ways is the whale that swallows the minnow that is Chevron. Am I saying that correctly? I think so. You know, it seems almost quaint to be worried about Chevron in 2023. And I think that's the point Steve was making. Chevron is important still, especially in the lower courts, 
especially when it comes to a lot of federal benefits programs like Medicare and Medicaid that are just mind-bendingly complicated, right? That have all of these formulas and subsections and sub-subsections that explain how benefits are supposed to be paid out. And it really helps when courts can defer to the experts who run those programs. And overturning Chevron would throw many millions of Americans into confusion and uncertainty when it comes to how benefits programs are administered. Also very helpful in certain areas of civil rights law, especially housing regulation, where again, there's really confusing laws. We typically defer to the experts at HUD and other agencies to figure out exactly what they mean. You know, overturning Chevron would would create a lot of confusion. But still, it's not anything compared to the major questions doctrine, which the court has wielded as a cudgel against any kind of agency action or regulation that it doesn't like. And so it almost feels like when you have the major questions doctrine, MQD, do you really even need Chevron? You know, Steve called it the minor questions doctrine. And and I think that's right. But, you know, I still think it's worth mourning the seemingly inevitable death of Chevron, in part because it will sow a lot of bafflement over the scope of a lot of different federal laws. And, and, possibly make lower court decisions more political because judges will have an easier time applying their own personal views and policy preferences rather than deferring to an agency that's responsible to the elected president. But but then also because of this arrogance thing that you were talking about, because overturning Chevron is the court saying, we don't think that these unelected bureaucrats should be the ones interpreting federal law. We think that we, the unelected judges, should be interpreting federal law. By the way, we have life tenure. Unlike those bureaucrats who are responsive to the president and thus to the people, we can do whatever we want for as long as we want, as long as our bodies will hold out. And we've decided that we're the ones who should be doing all of this stuff and saying what exactly the law means, even if it's a question of like where Congress meant to put the decimal point in some complicated Medicare formula. And I think that's bad. I think it's a symptom of a whole lot of hubris in the judiciary and a symptom of judicial restraint on the right completely falling by the wayside. You know, let's remember who were the champions of Chevron deference for years, Antonin Scalia and Clarence Thomas. They came on the court at a time when the conservative legal movement professed to want judicial restraint, so judges should stay within their narrow lanes. But after decades on the court, and after Clarence Thomas and Scalia became friends with a bunch of billionaires who run deregulatory machines, they changed their minds and said, no, we should be the ones making these decisions. Again, an ominous trend for those of us who do favor some kind of restraint on the judiciary. And even if we set aside the practical effects, it's disturbing to me, and I think to many others, that the court would rip up so many decades of precedent in a direct and overt effort to award themselves even more power that they've seized from the Democratic branches. Yeah, and and one footnote to your footnote, which is it's not just unelected Article Three judges who serve for life. It's also people who, I think you suggested this, but I want to say it explicitly, don't actually know anything about anything. I mean, they just <laughs> don't know what pollution is. They don't understand, you know, how healthcare works. They do not fathom uh, infectious disease. And they're the ones who are making decisions, substituting judgment for 
scientists substituting judgment for experts, substituting judgment for physicians, right? This is the court saying, oh, in addition to being elected for life, I'm also an expert on clean air and particulate matter. And that's the part that is the double whammy. Loper Bright sounds like such a cheerful name. Like if I were going (laughs) to overrule Chevron, I would pick Loper Bright because nothing bad can happen in a case called Loper Bright. Tell us just quick as you can, what the issue is and how this comes before the court. Basically, federal law requires federal officers to monitor certain fishing vessels to ensure that they aren't breaking the law, especially by overfishing, depleting the population so much so that we run out of these valuable resources that people need to not only maintain these industries, but to eat. Um, You know, people like having fish available at restaurants. One of the reasons that there is still fish available at restaurants is because the federal government has a major role in regulating how many of these fishies we can take out of the sea. The federal government has also said that when these federal officers are on these boats, that the companies themselves, the private companies, have to share the cost of having these monitors on the boats. And it's that cost-sharing question that is specifically at issue. The conservatives who kind of manufactured this case, led by Paul Clement, say that this is an egregious infringement on the liberty of these companies, that you know they're being forced to pay for this federal intrusion. There's at least one amicus brief that argues this is a violation of the Third Amendment, which prohibits the quartering of soldiers in private residences. I think that goes a little bit far, but it's a smart test case because I think if you explain it the way that Paul Clement explains it, a lot of people would just naturally say, yeah, why should the company have to pay for its own federal monitoring? They don't think about this deeper question of companies having a long track record of overfishing, depleting these resources. It's a human story that I think somebody like Neil Gorsuch will really zero in on. And it doesn't look like or sound like, right? Bright, as you said, it's happy, it's sunshine. It doesn't sound like the vehicle to overturn really important regulatory precedent, but that's what it is. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Okay, let's segue seamlessly from that depressing set of facts to the possibly more depressing facts around the CFPB case, because this actually, you and I have been thinking about this and writing about this together for some time. Tell us what it's going to look like when we take a big old blowtorch to the CFPB. Yeah. So, you know, the the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau was a product of the Great Recession, right? Congress created it in the Dodd-Frank Act. It monitors consumer protection in all realms of the economy and ensures that there aren't scams, that payday lenders aren't ripping off customers, that credit is being given out in a fair and, and equal way. And it has been a target of conservative ire from the very beginning. I think many listeners will remember that just a few years ago, we had a CFPB case where the Supreme Court struck down a part of the law 
that protected the director from removal by the president, that gave the director a five-year term and said, basically, the president can't remove him or her unless they have a really, really good reason, like corruption or malfeasance. The court struck that down and said, hey, actually, you know, the director has to be responsive to the president. Okay, Biden came in, fired Trump's director, installed his own. But that wasn't enough for conservatives who have raised a new challenge, which is that the entire CFPB, all of it from top to bottom, is unconstitutional because of the way that it is financed. And so unlike some but not all agencies, the CFPB is not financed through annual appropriations. It's not like Congress in in a bill every year says CFPB gets X amount of money. Instead, it's financed through the Federal Reserve, which transfers up to 12% of its total operating expenses to the CFPB each year based on the CFPB's request. It actually has requested less than that amount. It's a pretty frugal agency. But this mechanism kind of protects it a little bit against congressional intrusion. It's not a guarantee. There's still, you know, Congress could come in and pass a new law totally changing that structure. Congress could come in and abolish the CFPB. But what this funding mechanism does is is prevent a really kind of straightforward zeroing out of the CFPB's budget by its enemies in Congress. So the Fifth Circuit looked at this mechanism and said, actually, that is unconstitutional because, and it had two novel theories that it used here. So the first novel theory is that Congress has to explicitly appropriate money on a kind of regular basis to any federal agency. And that if Congress is not putting its nose to the grindstone and writing a bill that expressly appropriates a certain amount of money, then the funding mechanism violates the appropriations clause of the Constitution. By the way, Supreme Court has never found that a federal law violates the appropriations clause because it's almost a contradiction in terms. Like, as long as Congress appropriates the money, then it satisfies the appropriations clause. That's what Congress did here, right? It created a mechanism by which the money would be appropriated. But there's another argument, which is that even when Congress does appropriate money, there has to be a temporal limit on how long that money is going to flow to the agency. So Congress can't fund an agency or a federal program in perpetuity. It has to put a certain years-long limit on how long that money is going to continue flowing. And the Fifth Circuit said, you know, neither of those two requirements is satisfied here. So we're going to destroy the entire CFPB. A couple things I want to say about this. First of all, it is absolute flaming nonsense. Okay, there has never been a Supreme Court case or Supreme Court dicta or any lower court case before this crazy madness that suggested that there is a secret heretofore unknown restriction on appropriations that requires Congress to regularly reappropriate money through a bill that's stamped with the words appropriations on it. This is a totally new idea. And one of the reasons it's a new idea is that the Constitution really contradicts what the Fifth Circuit said here. So the the Constitution talks about how appropriations will work in general. And again, all it says is Congress has to appropriate the money, doesn't say how, But then it says, no money shall be appropriated to the army for more than a two-year period. So there is one explicit temporal limit on how long appropriations can go, which is to the army, two years, and no other limits. And yet the Fifth Circuit just read this limit into the Constitution and used it to kill off a federal agency. 
Practical problems with this decision, should the Supreme Court affirm it, are kind of difficult to overstate. The entire banking and housing industry, or at least much of the industry, has warned that it would set off a Great Depression, akin to the Great Depression of the 1920s and 30s, because it would essentially, in one fell swoop, repeal all of the rules that banks and lenders and builders are currently using to make sure that they adhere to federal law, they would stop providing mortgages. They would stop building new houses. The entire housing sector would basically collapse because nobody would know what the rules are. That would set off a kind of domino effect on the rest of the economy. Banks would have a very difficult time just lending money because they would have no safe harbor in CFPB rules to say, hey, we know this is legal because we're following the law. And it would crater pretty much the entire U.S. economy. And this is not just me riffing. This is what the experts in these industries say. I don't think the Supreme Court's going to agree. I think it's very unlikely that it's going to agree. But I do think it's important to note that this is how far the Fifth Circuit's willing to go. It's almost like they hate America and want to destroy it because their theories are so cockamamie and extreme. It's like they are trying to come up with the fastest, easiest ways to literally destroy this country. And I think the CFPB case is the perfect encapsulation of that phenomenon. I just want to make two quick, quick notes on this. One, the outright hilarity of taping a show in which the argument is Congress needs to do X or Y in exactly the moment in which Congress is trying to figure out whether to shut down government um, is so funny, <laughs> right? Like, we we don't know by Saturday morning, I guess listeners will know more about, but the idea that Congress, you know, <laughs> is diligently going to set exacting standards at this moment in history is extra, extra coffee out the nose. It's not funny. Um, the other thing that I just want to say, Mark, is this goes back to, I think, where we started, which is this hubris argument. You and I have talked a bunch over the last two years about how when the court substitutes judgment and then creates this kind of jelly new test, then every lawyer in America scrambles to figure out what the test is, right? After the EPA case two terms ago, you and I had a long conversation about what is an EPA lawyer to do? What is the new rule? What is the and we certainly saw that after affirmative action, right? We don't actually know what the new test is. And part of what the Fifth Circuit seems to be doing is surging into this gap and saying, oh, you want a new test? I'll show you a new test. And then they just make shit up. <laughs> yeah. And, and don't think through the consequences. Or again, maybe they do and they just hate America. But like, you know, this this theory would destroy pretty much all of the financial regulators in this country because most of the major players in financial regulation in the federal government have some measure of independence like the CFPB. So that would all be out the window. The Federal Reserve would be out the window. But also major government programs like Medicare and Medicaid are funded in perpetuity in a mechanism that the Fifth Circuit suggested is unconstitutional. So this would rip millions of people off Medicare and Medicaid. It would throw the economy into a debt spiral. It would do all the stuff that the Fifth Circuit didn't even bother thinking through because they were just so desperate and hungry to surge into this weird new area, as you said, that the Supreme Court has sort of carved out where it's like anything goes, throw it all at the wall. 
And maybe it'll trigger a Great Depression, but maybe they'll just be absolute legends for being the ones who triggered the Great Depression. And, you know, maybe that's enough if you sit on the Fifth Circuit. But again, I think SCOTUS is looking in a funhouse mirror this term at what the Fifth Circuit is doing. And hopefully we'll learn a few lessons. Do we think the Supreme Court can learn lessons? Let's pretend can. And let's say that they might learn a few lessons from this case about laying down the law a bit more clearly than they have been. Okay, I want to talk about other bad things, um, which brings us to the SEC case, uh, because if it's got letters in its name, the Supreme Court is putting it on the docket. Want to talk about that for a sec? Yeah, I mean, it's a very similar thing with the CFPB, right? Like, there's a trend here. So the Fifth Circuit, in an extraordinarily lawless decision, essentially held that administrative adjudication is unconstitutional. And what does that mean? It means that the SEC, Securities and Exchange Commission, is not allowed to bring these enforcement actions against corporations and individuals who are violating securities law for a number of reasons that are Barely even worth mentioning, but I'll just say briefly. So first, they say that it violates the non-delegation doctrine because it allows the SEC to decide whether it wants to do administrative adjudication or go into court. They say that it violates the Seventh Amendment by allowing these administrative adjudications without a jury trial, which just does not comply or comport with any known Supreme Court precedent. And she says that the administrative law judges at the SEC who adjudicate these cases, that they are not allowed to have these protections against removal because they have to be directly responsive to politics, even though the whole point of administrative adjudication is that, you know, you can take politics out of it because these judges are real judges who don't have to worry about getting fired for rendering a bad decision. If the Fifth Circuit is right about any of these things, then the federal government will no longer be able to adjudicate like anything, pretty much. Everything will just have to go through the federal courts, but the federal courts are already clogged up. It would mean a radical reduction in enforcement actions against lawbreakers and quite possibly the collapse of all of these agencies that are doing the enforcing. So a similar story of the CFPB, just like raw, furious deregulation at the fastest pace that you can imagine. I don't think the Supreme Court is going to side with the fight and fifth on this one either, but I think it's a closer call than the CFPB. And it's certainly Gorsuch bait and Thomas bait. And they could use this case to lay down some ideas that the Fifth Circuit returns to and expands on in a future wacky decision. So we have talked about Rahimi, you and I, and on last week's show, we talked about the implications of Rahimi. But I I would love for you to give a sort of fulsome explanation of what it is that Rahimi, poster boy for good conduct, um, what this case is all about. And as I said on last week's show, which folks should go back and listen to, we got a pretty bracing assessment from Ryan Bussey of what happens if Rahimi goes the way it looks like it's going to go. But I don't know that we talked at the time completely about the facts of the case that are coming before the court. So Mr. Rahimi, the defendant in this case, had a girlfriend with whom he shared a child. He and the girlfriend, uh, who goes by a pseudonym, got into an argument in a parking lot. 
Rahimi threatened to take their child away, to essentially kidnap the child. The girlfriend tried to leave, but Rahimi grabbed her wrist and threw her to the ground, dragged her back to his car, picked her up, pushed her inside, slammed her head against the dashboard, then grabbed a gun and fired it at a witness who had seen him abuse his girlfriend. During that time, the girlfriend escaped Rahimi called her and threatened to shoot her if she told anyone about the assault. The girlfriend went to a Texas state court, requested a protective order for domestic violence. Rahimi was invited to participate in these proceedings, and he did. The court adjudicated the case and issued a restraining order against Rahimi, prohibiting him from committing more violence or threatening or harassing or approaching his ex-girlfriend and their daughter. He did not follow that mandate. He also did not stop committing crimes. In addition to repeatedly trying to accost his ex-girlfriend, he went on a shooting spree where he fired many guns in the commission of many crimes. The federal government eventually charged him with a number of felonies. One of them was possessing a firearm while under a restraining order for domestic violence. That is illegal under federal law, if you have been adjudicated to be a threat to a, an intimate partner and you have been slapped with a restraining order, under federal law, you are not allowed to maintain possession of your guns. Mr. Rahimi fought the charge and said he had a Second Amendment right to keep his firearms while under this restraining order. And the Fifth Circuit agreed with him. And the Fifth Circuit ruled that under the Supreme Court's recent Bruin decision, Mr. Rahimi maintains his Second Amendment right even while under a restraining order because, according to the Supreme Court, modern gun laws are only constitutional if they have historical analogs from some period between 1791 and 1868. During that period, domestic violence was widely not considered to be a crime. Women were not considered to be equal citizens. Men were considered to have the right to abuse and rape their intimate partners. And so there are no historical analogs to this modern statute. And so the Fifth Circuit ruled in favor of Rahimi and purported to strike down this law, granting domestic abusers a freewheeling right to keep their firearms while under a restraining order for abusing their spouses, girlfriends, and loved ones. Does it matter for our purposes or for the purposes of the justices who are going to look at Rahimi that this is a civil adjudication, that it was not a criminal case that was the predicate for the restraining order? So I think that's the big question here. There's actually a whole lot of uncertainty about whether it would change if this were like a criminal conviction that prevented him from having his gun. Several federal courts have found that the law that prevents you from having firearms with a felony conviction is unconstitutional, that convicted felons have a Second Amendment right to a firearm. But here we're talking about something different. We're talking about someone whose case was adjudicated in civil court. I think that will matter to Clarence Thomas and Neil Gorsuch. You know, on the lower court, James Ho probably the Fifth Circuit's single worst judge, wrote this entire opinion that basically sounded like a men's rights activist screed straight out of an Andrew Tate live stream claiming that mm, women abuse restraining orders to try to punish 
their ex-boyfriends and estranged husbands, and that the restraining order procedure is just a way for one partner to get the upper hand in a divorce proceeding. That is not true. Judge Ho pulled this from, like, the worst fringes you can imagine. But I think that argument is going to hold sway with people like Gorsuch and Thomas. However, I do think that Kavanaugh and Roberts are going to be on the other side of this. And I think that because even in Bruin, even while signing on to that extraordinary and sweeping decision, Kavanaugh and Roberts clarified that they still think that there are reasonable limits on the right to bear arms, including, uh, say, a mental health restriction for carrying a gun in public, that if you have a record of, you know, dangerous or poor mental health, that you can be denied a permit to carry a gun in public. Well, that would also be a civil adjudication procedure, right? Uh, Or possibly even less so. That could be just a record of hospitalization. Yet Kavanaugh and Roberts seem to think it justifies a restriction on your right to bear arms. So I think for them, this will be the place to draw the line. But for the other conservatives, frankly, including Amy Coney Barrett, I am not so sure. I want to touch on the Mifepristone case. I think it's almost inevitable that having paused it, uh, the court now is going to have to look at it. I'm a little bit wondering if I don't think we have to talk at great length about the merits. We've talked about it so much, but I'm a little bit wondering if the court really wants to take another bite out of the reproductive freedoms of pregnant people and if they want to do it this term before the 2024 election. Thoughts? Right. You know, I think the court has already told us where it stands on this case when it intervened on the shadow docket and fully halted the Fifth Circuit's decision that would have dramatically restricted access to Mifepristone following Matthew Kaczmarek's decision purporting to ban it in all 50 states. I think that there are probably two justices, Thomas and Alito, who are whole hog on this and would gladly pull Mifepristone from the market. I don't know if any of the other justices want to play this game. And I think that the best way for the court to handle the Mifepristone case is to try to defeat use it by just denying standing and saying we aren't even reaching the merits because the standing claim is so weak. Remember, this entire case was fabricated by a group of anti-abortion doctors who say that they are harmed when other doctors give women who are not even their patients, right, not even these plaintiffs' patients, mifepristone to terminate a pregnancy. That because there is some alleged risk that a woman who is given mifepristone by some other doctor might wander into these plaintiffs' practices and need some assistance, that that establishes standing. I mean, for reasons we have discussed extensively already, Dahlia, that cannot possibly be true. That is the quintessential generalized grievance that does not establish an individual and personalized concrete injury. I think what the court should do, honestly, is just summarily reverse the Fifth Circuit on standing and send this case to the depths of hell from which it sprang. And I think there's a real chance that it'll do so. I just want to flag that I got a super smart note from a friend of mine, a smart lawyer friend who listened to last week's show and the interview with Ali Block and the excerpts from The Nocturnist about physicians trying to provide care post-Dobbs. And the things she remarked to me that I had entirely missed in the interview with Allie was that the standing claims of the physicians in the Mifepristone case are so 
attenuated and shabby as opposed to the actual harms suffered by actual treating physicians who are in agony day after day after day having to turn away patients and saying, like, you're not dying enough or you're not bleeding out fast enough for me to do my job. And just that, for me, really bracing reminder of which physicians have been harmed by Dobbs was just a very, very useful way to think about how, as you say, attenuated and cheap the physician harm claims are in the Mifepristone case. More, which is the wealth tax, so-called wealth tax case, is getting a lot of attention, and I want to land on that only because David Rivkin, who is a sometimes appellate attorney, but a sometimes friend of Samuel Alito, but also a journalist who works at the Wall Street Journal, who likes to exculpate Justice Alito from his non-existent conflicts of interest. <clears throat> Moore is getting a lot of attention for a lot of reasons. And I would love for you to unpack what the heck is going on with this wealth tax case. Yeah, I mean, Rivkin is a journalist in the same way that James Ho is a judge. Like, you have to use those terms very expansively and loosely to make it fit. But this is a case that's not even really about a wealth tax, right? We're calling it the wealth tax case because it was manufactured by conservative attorneys, including Rivkin, to try to preemptively kill the wealth tax that Democrats led by Elizabeth Warren have proposed. This is an idea that the federal government shouldn't just tax the realized income that you are making, but also the items that make up your wealth. She likes to say the Rembrandts, the Van Goghs, the diamonds, the jewels, right? That there's a holistic tax to try to tackle this problem of income inequality and the super wealthy hiding their money in these luxury items that don't get taxed. So this case actually does not deal with a wealth tax. It deals with this very obscure provision of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that was passed by a Republican Congress and signed into law by Donald Trump that is a one-time mandatory repatriation tax that is so complicated, I'm not going to try to explain every nook and cranny of how it works. But basically, it means that if you are an American who holds shares in a foreign corporation, after this law was passed, you had to pay a one-time tax based on that corporation's income. Very complicated, was not affecting a whole lot of people, but some of the people, the Moors, decided they would leverage it to try to preemptively kill a wealth tax. And so they have sued. And what they've said is that the 16th Amendment, which authorizes an, an income tax on the federal level, it only permits taxation on realized income. So the income that you are collecting in your pocket that you can spend basically at this moment, right? And that income that is theoretical that you're making from, say, holding shares in a foreign corporation, that that income can never be taxed until it is realized. And obviously, if that's true, then a wealth tax is 
off the table because you aren't making money at this moment off the Rembrandt that you have on your walls. You'll make money when you sell it, but not until that moment. Uh, the problem with this theory is that there is no realization requirement in the 16th Amendment and the Supreme Court has never read one into it. This idea that income has to be defined that narrowly, that it is money that is directly and immediately flowing into your pocket, it just is not established in the text of the Constitution or in any of the court's precedents on this. And, and I think it's pretty obvious why, because the purpose of the 16th Amendment was to overturn a Supreme Court decision that had interpreted the government's power to levy an income tax so narrowly as to be non-existent. And the people ratified this amendment to overturn the decision and create a very, very expansive new power right in the thick of the progressive era to kind of hit rich people where it hurts to ensure that the wealthy would be paying a much larger share of taxes. And our entire tax system is built on that idea. You know, the, the Solicitor General goes into details. Basically, the way that corporations and partnerships are taxed would potentially be disrupted if the court sides with the Moors in this case, because not all of that income that's taxed is realized income for both corporations and partnerships. And so this is like a little case in theory that would totally upend our understanding of the 16th Amendment that would possibly upend a lot of how the tax code is currently functioning and would almost certainly prevent a future Democratic president from signing a wealth tax into law. And when you add on top of that, the fact that Sam Alito is best friends with the lead attorney on this case, it really reeks of something approaching corruption. Big sigh. Big, big sigh. Um, this show minors in the law of Trump to the extent that it majors in the Supreme Court. Can, can we just do a quick run through... Holy hell, there are a bunch of criminal cases. There's a huge now <laughs> case out of New York regarding the Trump Corporation. There's another Eugene case coming. Oh, and there is an attempt to disqualify Trump from being on the ballot, also now filed under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Um, do you want to give any thoughts, every thought, some just random thoughts on they're all the law of <laughs> the law of Trump and how it plays out at the United States Supreme Court in the year and change between now and the 2024 election I, I guess I would rather talk about feelings instead of rational thoughts because uh, this this stuff is all so complicated and it's now so multifaceted and playing out in different states and different federal courts. I don't want to make our listeners like intentionally veer into oncoming traffic because they are so tired of hearing about Trump crime. What I'll say is that I think this court has drifted away from any kind of fidelity that it felt to Trump. Um, and that's excluding Alito and Thomas, Thomas especially. I think they are still the MAGA justices. You know, I don't think that Brett Kavanaugh, Amy Barrett, and, and John Roberts feel any particular strong allegiance to Trump or strong gratitude toward Trump. In fact, I think that John Roberts hates Trump pretty clearly. Um, that doesn't mean he'll always rule against Trump. But, uh, you know, there is a sense that I'm, I'm getting from certain smoke signals and opinions and votes on the Supreme Court that they want to be done with him. But of course, they, they aren't, right? He, he's still here and bothering them with all of these different cases. And so, you know, I think probably Probably the most important one, in a sense, for SCOTUS will be this issue of disqualification, of whether Trump 
is disqualified from running for and holding federal office because he aided and abetted an insurrection on January 6th. And we've had conservative scholars like Will Bode weigh in and say, absolutely, he's disqualified. We've had some conservatives, some liberal scholars take the other position and say, no, he's not, or at least this is, you know, a dangerous kind of threat to democracy. We shouldn't be in the business of having unelected judges keeping candidates off the ballot. Uh, my feeling is that the constitutional arguments are quite strong against Trump, that if the 14th Amendment Section 3 does not apply here against Trump, it's not clear who it would ever apply against unless there's literally a rise of the Confederacy once again. Um, and yet I am concerned that allowing unelected judges to strip him off the ballot would create a huge amount of anger, of fury, and even violence among his supporters who would view it as its own kind of coup. So I am glad I don't have to be in that position of deciding. Uh, I don't think the justices want to be. I think that if they can, they will try to kick all of the Section 3 cases on standing because it's very unclear who will have standing to challenge Trump's placement on the ballot. Will it be any random voter? Will it be a competing candidate? Who has a concrete injury from Trump's presence on the ballot? It's a, it's a, it's a good question. I don't know the answer. But I think if they do get to the merits, the, the court will probably not remove Trump from the ballot, in part because... This conservative majority has a strong bias against novelty, against new ideas that are arising out of the law and not coming from Federalist Society conventions, right? And a lot of their decisions, like allowing the CFPB director to be fired by the president, that was this idea that sort of, uh, you know, if this law is novel, then we're going to assume it's unconstitutional unless proved otherwise. If James Madison wouldn't have written it himself, then we're just going to assume it's it's wrong. And so I think that this bias against novelty will probably guide the court. But it's a difficult question. On the criminal cases, I mean, look, I think that the prosecutors in, in all of these cases are doing a pretty good job. I think Alvin Bragg's case is the weakest, but also presents the weakest federal question. I think the January 6th case and the Mar-a-Lago case are the big federal ones here. And it's unclear which questions in those disputes are going to rise to the level of Supreme Court review. You know, will Eileen Cannon in South Florida do something so crazy that the Supreme Court has to step in? Um, will Trump push this disqualification claim against Judge Tanya Chutkin here in D.C.? Uh, all the way to the Supreme Court, where I do think he would lose. There are too many possible avenues for for a, an issue in these cases to go to SCOTUS for me to make any predictions now. But I guess I'll just say, I don't think that the conservative justices, or most of them at least, will be happy to be in that position. And if Trump's claims are obviously wrong and should obviously fail, I tend to think that they will. Yeah, my, my, my version of the same answer is... I'm Amy Coney Barrett. I want to serve for another 30 to 60 years. Do I really want to inherit a Trump administration where the first question that percolates up to the court is, can the president execute Mark Milley? Like, I just don't think that the legal questions that Trump 2024 uh, victory brings to the court are the kinds of things, you know, that ultimately leave the country in a, you know, smoldering rubble uh, that are that that there are five or even I would say four justices super, super interested in uh, making sure that Trump gets into office. So I, I tend to feel the same way. But as you say, um, I don't know that it's hard to predict because there are 
a hundred potential stories to tell here, it's very, very hard to predict how it's going to go down other than that general feeling. Mark, there was lots more to talk about. And having just uh, very dourly said, I hate curtain raisers, there is no one I would rather curtain raise with uh, than you. So thank you for being here. And it's going to be just hella term. (laughs) It always is. And we'll go through it together, come hell or high water, come right? Hella, right? Come hella high water. That <laughs> that that is the that is the the name of the show. Okay, Mark Joseph Stern covers the Supreme Court and the state courts and all the courts and all the laws and all the lawsuits for us here at Slate. And Mark, we will talk to you next week. Talk soon. And that is a wrap for this episode of Amicus, the Reluctant Curtain Raiser Edition. Thank you so much for listening in. Thank you so very much for your letters and questions. You can always keep in touch with us at amicus at slate.com, or you can find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. As ever, we thank you for your emails. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. Alicia Montgomery is Vice President of Audio at Slate. And Ben Richmond is our Senior Director of Operations. We'll be back with another episode of Amicus in one short week, uh, at which time we will have already heard arguments in favor of dismantling the administrative state. We will be here to mull it all over with you, our listeners. Until then, take good care of yourselves. 